Today's show is brought to you by Audible. And please visit audiblepodcast.com slash escapepod for your free audiobook download. Escape Pod 259 September 23rd, 2010 The Lady or the Tiger By J. M. McDermott Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. Alright folks, I'm not going to dick around this week. This week's story has giant lizards in it. That means straight to business as far as old Uncle Norm's concerned. This week we bring you The Lady or the Tiger by J.M. McDermott. J.M.'s last novel, Last Dragon, was number six on Amazon.com's year's best science fiction fantasy of 2008 and was shortlisted for the Crawford Prize and on Locus Magazine's recommended reading list. He has novels forthcoming from Nightshade Books and Apex Publications, and Last Dragon is already available as an inexpensive ebook sold wherever ebooks are sold. The story first appeared in Apex Magazine February 2010. Mr. McDermott says that, as a child, he always thought the story The Lady or the Tiger by Frank Stockton was utterly ridiculous because of the weight of the two options available. The choice was actually between death by tiger or a long life and an arranged marriage. Is an arranged marriage really a fate potentially as bad as death by tiger? I mean, really? This is not a difficult decision to make. People lose the one they love all the time and are happy and healthy and fine. People do not often get eaten by tigers, and it is quite a bit worse than losing the person you love. When he thought of ways to apply science fictional themes to the original question of the classic story by Frank Stockton, his rationale was to create a choice that had something at least in the neighborhood of balance. The story is read to you by Grant Pachoco, so bundle up and get your blowtorches ready, because it's story time. The Lady or the Tiger by J.M. McDermott Reimagined from a classic tale by Frank Stockton, 1882. Many years ago, when I was a boy of only ten, I was in a terrible crash on the cliffs of the south side of Io Town, where nights are a deep tundra freeze and afternoons are as hot as a summer on the long plains. Even now I close my eyes and I can still see Sheila's face just before she was crushed under the two thick layers of plasteel. I had watched her half of the flyer cracking away from mine and rolling on top of her, and collapsing on top of her. Her scream disappeared from the icy air so fast, the only way I knew it had been real was the echo of it down the canyons, where a small avalanche threw rocks and snow down to the stream. I tried to free her, but my brother, Jiri, stopped me because the freeze would preserve her until we could dig her out during the warm day, and we had to make our shelter before we froze to death. We had our survival to worry about. We could save her in the morning. So that's what we did. We were in our shelter. We were warm and mostly safe enough. Jerry had told me to try and get some sleep. I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about her. I tried to remember the songs she sang over me while I swam in the river, or the special way she had of preparing sandwiches for me, with the crust cut off and the sauce on both sides. Then, all I could think of was the explosion, the fall, the screaming, and the crushing sound of the plasteel, and the blood in the snow from where my brother had used flaming wreckage to burn the stumps shut at his lost fingers. The only thing I could think of to take my mind off Sheila and the crash was asking my brother about Guj Sawar, the tiger on the back of the great and mighty lizard Samarkand. 
When I was a boy, I didn't understand why it was the only thing I could think about, like something was on the tip of my tongue. And Jerry knew everything there was to know about the wastes of the Far West, the lizards and the tigers. He was fifteen years old. Next year, he'd be driving cattle up the highway to Io Town in a flyer all by himself. I was only ten. I didn't even have a computer terminal yet. I had to share his when he wasn't using it. Everything I knew about the wastes had been from the computer and from Jerry. On the wastes of Simsa, said my brother, you can't walk on the ground. The sand is all quicksand. It sucks you up and swallows you. You have to ride on the back of giant lizards as big as walking mountains. There are only twenty-five lizards. They have names. Are there plants on the wastes? Of course there are plants, Simsa. There are plants everywhere. Even out there on the high canyons, clover grows and mold lines the cliff walls. The lizards of the wastes eat floating molds and large bushes that grow on top of the quicksand like forests of soap scum. The people keep their houses on the back ridges because the constant up and down of the head drives you nuts when the lizard's feeding. How do they survive out there? People live in huts on the lizards. They grow blood wheat. They mine for lizard flesh. But they have to be careful not to cut a vein, or the beast will bleed like crazy. They trade like we do at the station. It was sixty below freezing outside by now. The tent skin radiated enough heat to keep us warm. The dead grass and snow blowing around outside wouldn't penetrate past the magnets that held the flap shut. My brother had wrapped his bloodied, burned hands in part of his shirt. He had lost two fingers in the crash and had burned them mostly shut. The wound extended up his palm and still bled a little now and then. Jerry had gotten his smoke-smelling blood on the handles of our hot mugs of chocolate milk. I leaned back. I closed my eyes. What about the tigers? There's only one tiger left, and he's not really a tiger. He said, "Not really." At school, I heard Frankie say there was a lizard that had nothing but tigers. Frankie's so dumb; he wouldn't know which end of a battery to shove up his own ass. I laughed. That's what Frankie said to me about the tigers. I said he said there was a lizard with only tigers on it. Well, don't believe everything you hear. There's only one tiger left. One. He's not even really a tiger. He just has a tiger-like head. He lives on Samarkand, the biggest, oldest lizard in all the wastes. You know Samarkand because his legs are covered in scars. Nobody knows why. A scientist said the scars were from when Samarkand tried to walk out of the waste. Lizards don't leave the waste, though, not ever. They can't survive out of the quicksand. Their feet only work right in the wastes. The winds outside swelled. Sand splattered the side of the tent. Both of us grabbed for the edge of our tent. We waited until the gusts passed. When it had, my brother lay his sleeping pad over the edge, right up against the heat. Simsa, he said, try to get some sleep. We'll have a million things to do in the morning. Where do you think Samarkand's scars came from? He rolled over onto his side. He looked at me lying in the middle of our little tent. I think he got into a fight with another lizard, and I think he won. I think that's why there aren't any more lizards with scars. The other lizards give Samarkand a wide berth along the wastes. They see him walking over the horizon. They turn away. Then, because he was too tired to speak any more, he said, "Go to sleep, Simsa." I sat in the dark. I watched Jerry sweat pressed up against the heated tent skin, breathing gently. I drank hot chocolate. I hugged my legs. I thought about tomorrow and what we'd have to do for Sheila, and for ourselves. 
I had known everything before my brother told me, but I didn't want him to know that. Guj Sawar, currently living on Samarkand, was the only survival of the battle on the space elevator. He was part of the isolationist faction that had almost destroyed the Ansible. The Tigers had climbed up the outside of the elevator at Io Town, with nanoparticle scimitars strapped to their backs. They knew that Parliament would send electromagnetic pulses along the outside to stop anyone from climbing up. The fighters had to make their hands sharp claws to grip, even when the pulses tried to throw their hands and feet off. They had to make their bodies capable of surviving the climb into the thermosphere. They had to grow fur and alter their noses and mouths to seal the flammable oxygen blends against the electromagnetic defenses. They couldn't count on just goggles. They traded eyes with cave cats. They needed to see in low light to get to the mesosphere in the dark. There's only one tiger left after the battle. He's been hiding on the head of Samarkand for twelve years. Everyone who went after him got sliced to ribbons or dumped into the wastes. These days, he's just left alone. He can't speak anymore. Tiger mouths don't speak except in growls and roars. He can't type messages into the computer terminals either. His fur interrupts EM radiation too much to get him anywhere near a terminal without it shorting out. His claws are no good at holding a stylus or a pen. He can only carve burning letters with his deadly scimitar, which isn't an effective method of communication when most things would be burned and eaten into ash by the nanites. He lives isolated from mankind forever after losing the war he destroyed himself to fight. Yet for some reason known only to him, he refuses to turn himself in or commit honorable suicide. His army of tigers had failed. The Ansible was built. The ships come and go, trading and trading. By the time I was old enough to notice a world outside the ranch, the war that had claimed Guj Sawar's humanity, and all the brave isolationists that had become tigers and died on the Io Town space elevator, was already mostly forgotten. These days, Guj Sawar was stalking the blood wheat fields in the dark, stealing sausage and chasing down the birds that are native to the thickets on the back of the beast. He left people alone as long as they left him alone. In the morning, Jerry flipped the heating skin off. We were both sweating. It was better than freezing. We had to wait in our tent and change into dry clothes. If we stepped outside with any damp on us before the sun had burned off all the snow, we might freeze to death. We drank the last of our chocolate milk. It wasn't going to keep anyway when the refrigeration unit would be otherwise in use. When we were dry, we wrapped ourselves in clean, dry clothes and stepped outside. We had a lot of cutting to do. Sheila's body was trapped under at least two layers of plasteel. She'd never be the same again, but a clone of her with whatever memories survived would be better than losing her forever. The deep chill of the night would have preserved almost everything. The afternoons got too warm, though. The day's weather would heat up rapidly, melt the snow down into the underground aquifers. By mid-afternoon, the winds would change, and the weather would quickly turn into a harsh chill, snow falling everywhere. We had to get her out before the heat rotted her brain synapses. That wasn't all we had to do. We were out of water. As soon as noon passed and the sun turned away from our cliffside, the chill would be back, and we'd have to be prepared in our tent for another long night waiting for rescue. We needed water to do that, or we'd die of thirst long before we had ever starved. We were, fortunately, crashed on a cliff that overlooked a mountain stream deep below. The stream was frozen now, but by mid-morning it would flow cold and clean. As soon as our tents registered a safe outdoor temperature, we went to Sheila. Jiri had the tools. Do you think you can get us some water, Simsa? I shook my head. Sheila. 
I can get Sheila. I want to be sure. I said. I choked up. Whiny baby. Fine. You do the cutting. He pulled the hand torch from our toolkit. Be careful, though. Don't heat her body up. I took the torch. I toggled a couple of switches. I pulled at the trigger. Nothing happened. My brother snatched it from my hands. Don't know how, do you? I looked at where Sheila was under the rubble. I don't want to leave her. My brother took a deep breath. Simsa, I started to cry. Fine, just try not to get in my way. He adjusted the nozzles and switches on the little torch. He touched the plasteel. The metal was slow to cut through. It was freezing cold. I watched my brother work. I looked around the camp for something I could do. We had our tent lashed down tightly. We had a couple boxes of supplies, another toolkit, some emergency rations lashed down next to the tent. Jerry had the larger toolkit out with the torch, the anchor, and the repel line. The ship's refrigeration unit had ejected with food and milk near the top of the pile of the rubble. Batteries still intact. It was better than emergency rations. When we dug Sheila out, it would keep her head frozen through the warm afternoons. I wondered if I shouldn't watch for snow lizards or pterodactyls or other scavengers after easy blood. Jerry needed help pulling the first layer off. I took one end and he took the other. He could barely grip anything with his two fingers missing and the cut up his palm. The stumps had started to bleed again. He didn't say anything. He just tightened the bandage until it stopped. The next layer was going to be harder because it was the outer shell of the flyer. It was still cold enough below the plasteel, so we knew Sheila would still be frozen. Jerry took a long drink from our last quart of milk. Simsa, what else did that poop for brains Frankie tell you about the tiger of Samarkand? He told me, I don't know. Well, there were many tigers, hundreds of them. They knew they would never be able to stop the Ansible or shut down Io Town space elevator. Why did they want to do that? I said, it's stupid. They were idealists, uncompromising. They had to try. They were fools, of course. They killed people. No ideals are worth killing people. They were terrorists. Only idiots are terrorists. If Frankie had been around during that time, he would be just the poop for brains that would join them. What are they so worried about anyway? Why do they hate the Ansible and the space elevator, minerals, carbon, and the planet? You know our cattle grow here on grass and wheat that we grow on world. Then they go to Io Station to be taken off world into space for merchants all across the galaxy. Yeah, well they carry part of the planet with them, carbon and vitamins and little bits and pieces of molecules that we cannot bring back. In exchange, do you know what we get? Money, plastic. Plasteel, silicates, machines made of these things. That refrigerator, this ship—these things don't make life. Frankie doesn't know anything about that. Of course not. Anyway, they were being stupid. We can just trade for things later, then bring back what we need. It's all stupid. I knew this already. I had seen the videos. The protests were all over the world for a while before the Ansible was built. Before I was born, I had watched them on Jerry's computer late at night. We had to hurry to get through the next layer before the freeze wore off with the direct sun on the plasteel shell. We didn't have much time. About halfway through the side wall, Jerry stopped trying to cut it all. He looked up at the sun. It wasn't mid-morning yet, but it was close to it. He took a deep breath. He started to focus on just one part near the top, where the hand tools X-ray gave a readout of Sheila's head below the plasteel. Jerry cut just there hurriedly. "What are you doing?" I said. "You're doing it wrong, Simsa." Go get water," he said. "I'll be done when you get back." "I'm not leaving her," Simsa. "Listen, you don't want to be here when I cut through the second wall. 
It's not going to be pretty. I don't care, I said. I won't leave her. It's not that, Simsa, he said. It's... Look, we're almost out of time. We just need to preserve her head. It's all we can fit in the refrigeration unit anyway. Oh, I said. I closed my eyes. I was crying again. Oh. He was right. I turned away. You know how to do this, I said. I, I mean, you know exactly what you're doing and you won't hurt her. He peeled away a strip of plasteel. She's going to be fine, he said. She'll walk funny for a few days, then she'll be fine. She'll remember everything but the crash. It'll be like nothing happened, I promise. Go get some water, Simsa. I'll be done when you get back. Okay, I said. I gathered the ropes and canteens. I listened to the sound of the plasteel melting off in strips tossed aside in a rush. The rocks were craggy and jagged. I walked down the mountain. I imagined I was climbing down the ridges of a lizard in the wastes. I imagined I was a tiger, sneaking down the neck of Samarkand in the night to steal crops and vandalize things from off-world. At the bottom of the cliff, the stream was slow and thin. I couldn't easily get water inside the canteens. I used my hands to cup water and pour it in. Then I dropped the purifier pills into the full canteens and capped them shut. It took time. I had plenty of time. I didn't want to be on the top of the cliff until my brother was done and had covered up the mess. A pack of tundra lizards splashed over the rocks in the stream. They were about as big as my father's boots. They only had one primitive eye. They swayed from side to side to single me out against the rocks. I frowned at them. Go away, I said. Tongues flicked in the air. These scavengers had smelled the blood on me. I stood up. I waved my hands around. They backed away. Go away, I shouted. My voice echoed up the canyon. The lizards scattered into the porous cliffside at the water's edge. I gasped and cowered at the walls around me. Had I caused an avalanche? Tiny rocks dribbled down, nothing more. Jerry would be mad at me for yelling. I should have known better. I was a rancher's son, and this was my planet. I should have thrown stones at the lizards. They're scavengers hunting for dead pterodactyls and bugs, and they're never interested in a struggle. I took my time on the way back up, thinking about what I'd say to my brother about my shout. I left the rope pull on its lowest setting. It was safest at a slow setting, up the cliff, especially after that shout. I hoped my brother had placed a kind of tarp or cloth or a bit of abandoned steel over the body. I hope he wouldn't yell at me for shouting. Day heat broke. I felt the air bite through my clothes. Snow began to fall. It was going to be another freezing night, and rescue hadn't found our crash site yet. They might not find us for another day or two. Io Town wouldn't notice one ranch flyer out of the five we flew up to the different trading sites. Even our men would empty the cargo trailer and turn home. Our parents would only notice when our flyer didn't come home on schedule. They might try to call and leave a message, but our communicators had been lost in the crash. It might be days before they suspected anything, and even more days until they found us. The rope pulled me up without any effort. I just walked up the wall of the cliff, slowly and carefully. Calmness washed over me as I neared the top. I believed that everything was going to be fine. In a week, we'd all be back home at the ranch, sitting around the kitchen table eating ice cream, and nothing would be different. I crawled over the lip of the cliff and climbed to the top on hands and knees. I looked up to my brother. Jerry had collapsed face down on the final wall of plasteel. Beetles had found his pooled blood and wounded hand and buzzed about it, slurping it up and feasting on it, laying eggs in the finger stubs. I vomited. Then I stood up. I dropped the canteens. I yanked the rope loose and away from my waist. I ran to him and to her. My brother had slipped in her blood with a lathe in his hands. 
He had accidentally cut a new part of his wounded hand with it, and that had opened the whole wound where his fingers were missing up to his palm. He had cut through most of her head when he had blacked out from the blood loss. He was so close to saving her that he hadn't stopped in time to save himself. I pulled him back from the wreckage. I saw Sheila's face. Her beautiful face was ruined. It was smashed. It was sticky, partially frozen blood. It wasn't Sheila. It wasn't the woman who had kissed me twice because I was her favorite, or sung songs while she watched me swimming, or had always pretended to need my help with the jars. This face was some other thing, some awful thing, all bloody and mangled and covered in scavenging beetles. My brother's body was still warm. He wasn't breathing. He had no pulse. Her head was warming in direct sunlight, losing more synaptic connections every moment spent in the afternoon heat that muddled the bloody ice frost around what was left of her hair. I grabbed the hand torch. I fumbled with it until I got it to ignite. I only had one refrigeration unit. It was only big enough for one head. Do I save the lady or the tiger? I called my brother a tiger because I knew he was the one responsible, even then when I was just a boy. Deep down inside, I knew. I knew all about Guj Sawar on the back of Samarkand before I had asked my brother anything. I had read about it from my brother's page history on the computer we shared at home. I had read the tracks and stories and propaganda. I had seen the same videos. My brother didn't know that. We had been flying cattle to our family holding pens at the foot of the Io Town space elevator to ship off world, where their minerals and carbons and life-giving things would be lost to this world. The cattle were gone now. Sheila had ejected the cattle in their cargo trailer when the trouble had started. They weren't awake to scream. They fell. They crashed. Already the lizards and pterodactyls on the high plains would have picked the bones of the cattle clean to the bone. I had been sitting next to Sheila in the cockpit, strapped in. My brother was behind me. I looked up at her, beautiful and wild, a woman so much older than me, a child, and I loved her terribly. She was terrified. She was shouting and bouncing in her seat and praying and pushing buttons and looking at me and at my brother and back at her dials. And my brother, I knew, had caused this. A few cans of condensed air, hidden in the cargo stabilizers, pressurized in flight when the vessel crossed above the troposphere. They exploded, knocking the stabilizers off the side of the cargo container. Guj Sawar taught that to his followers before they lost their humanity and embraced more violent actions. A good pilot could dump the cargo and fly home safely. Sheila, the woman I loved, was not a good pilot. She was an adequate pilot. She was only flying cargo because my father and all his men were already flying cargo. It was the large shipment. Sheila usually didn't fly. She had asked us to come with her to keep her company. When the stabilizers broke, she didn't dump the cargo fast enough. The destabilized cargo had jackknifed and slammed against her side of the ship. She'd been stunned for a few moments too long before Jerry had shouted at her to dump the cargo. Then we'd been falling, falling, falling. My brother, the isolationist, the tiger. I had the cutting tool in my hand. My brother, even after what he'd done, he had never meant to kill anyone. Even at ten years old, I too could sense the romance of the tiger of Samarkand and the isolationists. Sheila was just an employee who cleaned our houses, watched over the children, and flew my brother and me to market when we were due for a treat. And just as importantly, I loved her as only a ten-year-old could love. She was his victim. She never deserved this. Sheila, my beautiful lady. I tightened my grip on the hand torch. I could not hesitate. Each moment spent deciding was another memory lost forever. 
Did I save the lady or the tiger? Whom should I have saved? I am a man now, with a ranch of my own on Samarkand's back. I will always wonder if I have made the right choice. Well, that was our story. Civilizations built on giant lizard backs, human tiger chimera soldiers, poop for brains. I don't want to hear any negative feedback about this story in the discussion forums. Not allowed. Just playing. It's your call, your choice. Conundrums. Can't live with them, can't have a good story without them. Being able to make tough choices of our own free will is what separates us from robots and slaves. For a long time, people have fought and died for that right. And if they had the eyes and claws of cave cats, they'd definitely have the upper hand. Just saying, Obama. Think about it. Okay, let's go now to our assistant regional manager, Bill Peters, for a little listener story feedback. Hey guys, this is Murr, your editor. Before Bill gets to feedback, I do want to mention that we do have a sponsor this week, and that is Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, information, and educational programming. Just like a podcast you can listen to whenever and wherever you want, it has over 1,000 science and technology and over 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. If you sign up for a free trial today, you will get a free audiobook download. Now, I'm an Audible customer, and I have to tell you that I just finished The Alchemist and the Executionist by Paolo Bacigalupi and Tobias Bakel, two very awesome science fiction writers who wrote two novellas to be sold together in one book. They're two different stories, same world, fantastic narration. I can't recommend this highly enough. So please check out audiblepodcast.com slash escapepod and download The Alchemist and the Executionist or whatever other free audiobook you would like today. Hey, this is Feedback for Episode 251. Unexpected Outcomes by Tim Pratt. You know, I don't even think I need to finish his name with the number of times he's been on this cast, and let's face it, your guys' undying adoration for him. But it was by Tim Pratt and read by Tom Evo Spice Rockwell. The story's about the end of the world, or, well, 9-11, or, well, honestly, a lot of things, and digging to China. You guys, as is fairly normal for Pratt, love the story. The listener said that he liked the story. Of the self-inclusion aspect, and yes, I know Tim and Heather were fictional characters because they're in a universe that doesn't quite exist, turned me off a bit in the beginning. It always has. The story overcame that, though. Writer Jeff Lane agreed with an earlier comment that the story would be a great first chapter to a novel, saying that this comment spoke to what a tantalizing world Tim has introduced to us. Though I hope, think, that the humanity's persistence and ingenuity but eventually went out and turned the tables on the experimenters. And Marie Brennan, who had a really quite excellent story last week over at our fantasy sister, sister fan, uh, our fellow podcast, Podcastle, um, for who I moderate the forums. Anyway, she said that the 9-11 opening made her twitch at first. Glorious Bastards got me thinking about how we've nearly always ready to see alternate histories that make things worse, but there's odd limitations, partly time-based, on whether we're ready to see history made alternate in a fashion that averts horror. 9-11 is definitely too recent, but my twitchiness went away as soon as the simulation was explained, because it didn't really erase the event. 
And next week I'll be talking at you about Billion Dollar View. Thanks, Bill. All right, folks, that's our show. And I can only sever one of your heads and take it with me. So who's it going to be? If you enjoyed this week's story, consider donating to us via the support options off our website, escapepod.org. Remember, tundra lizards, pterodactyls, awesome giant reptiles as big as mountains, get out those ones and make it rain, people. This story was a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is shooting through the tubes with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license. Don't change or sell it, but share it all you like. Our music is used with the permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quote this week comes from Stephen Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, who said, While we are free to choose our actions, we are not free to choose the consequences of our actions. Mm